Um, as been said, get ready for some rock and roll Bible. Uh, we'll be reading verses 4 through 14 and then 26 through 28. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually. And in the midst of the fire, as it were gleaming metal, and from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had a face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies, and each went straight forward. Whenever the spirit would go, or wherever the spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the, as for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro, like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Verse 26. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, and the appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance, and upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw it, saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so as the appearance of the brightness all around." Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. This is the very word of God. Well, a word of uh, clarification first from uh, last week's sermon two weeks ago. We introduced a theme for the year of sermons and that theme is the life-giving love of God. But we have a title for our study through Ezekiel, and I failed to mention it last week. I mentioned the theme for the year, but didn't mention the theme, uh, the title of the whole sermon series. And I wanted to make sure, since it's printed in your worship guide, um, Vincent, our brother Vincent, made the artwork, did a fantastic job. We're calling this series... Uh, in our study in Ezekiel, tough love, tough love. I think you'll see why as we go through, we have entitled the series that way. Now, it doesn't take long in reading Ezekiel before anybody begins to see that this is not exactly going to be an easy book to understand. 
The opening vision of chapter one is filled with images that it's hard to visualize and even more challenging to interpret. If after that reading, you already feel lost or find yourself having trouble being as excited about opening up Ezekiel as you were in opening up Romans, take heart. We've got some tools at our disposal to make some real progress in understanding this book. Now, I don't imagine that many of us are going to be able to spend hours upon hours digging deep into Ezekiel's enigmas. I, of course, have that privilege and honor. It is an incredible honor. Thank you for letting me serve in this way. And I want to invite you to go as deep with me in this book as you can. I hope that you will not miss out on any of the sermons as we work our way through the text. They'll be available to you online, of course, for you to go back if you happen to miss a Sunday or, or perhaps serving upstairs in our preschool ministry. Um, I hope you'll do whatever would help you the best in writing down your thoughts, grab a notebook, Write in your Bibles, in your margins, if need be. Let's see what we can do. There are, of course, plenty of good resources and commentaries available to us. Again, I say it is a blessing to be this far into Christian history, 2,000 plus years, able to build upon the studies of others. We don't have to start from scratch. We can build upon what Christians for 2,000 years have thought as they have read the book of Ezekiel. Longer than that, actually. Now, at the same time, there needs to be a caution stated here. The enigmatic nature of a book like Ezekiel is a breeding ground for bizarre interpretations. We're going to have to be careful with settling on firm convictions on what an image means without good support for that view. I'm going to do the best I can to uh, tell you what I think Ezekiel is telling us. Don't take my word for it. Go check out the resources if you want. The sermon manuscripts have footnotes. This one's got a bunch of them. Because how else am I going to know? What to think of these images. So go look them up if that's helpful. But this is good practice, by the way, not just for interpreting a book like Ezekiel, but for interpreting a New Testament book like the Revelation. Just like Ezekiel, you are aware that the book of Revelation is a New Testament book which has spawned all sorts of wild ideas and theology, some of which have dominated the minds of Christians for generations, making it seem heretical to suggest a different interpretation, even if it is a more historical interpretation. For example, this will make sense to some of you, many have just assumed, and some of you are going to think I'm a heretic, but that's okay, many have just assumed that the Bible clearly teaches that there is some secret rapture of Christians, you know, snatched away from the earth before a great tribulation comes, 
and taking that assumption to a book of like Revelation have found somewhere in Revelation support for that doctrine, even though, surprise, it's not there. It's not there. And we really shouldn't be convinced that the mysterious locusts in Revelation 9 are Apache helicopters. In the same way, let's not entertain that Ezekiel's experience in this first chapter was him encountering some alien spaceship. Yes, a book has been written claiming that's what Ezekiel experienced. I think we can do better than that. And by the way, we need to do better because, I mentioned this last week, the imagery in Revelation depends quite a bit on the experience and the prophecies of Ezekiel. John's vision of the heavenly throne in Revelation 4, remember that one? We sing about it. You're probably familiar with it. It takes no less than a dozen descriptions from Ezekiel 1, John uses in Revelation 4. No less than 12 descriptions taken from Ezekiel that John uses when he describes his vision in Revelation 4. So apparently, the Christians, the early Christians, did not leave Ezekiel locked up in the dusty archives, but saw it as the foundation for understanding Jesus and his achievement and the worldview that followers of Jesus must now hold, hold to and hold out and operate their lives out of that worldview as well. So we've got to pay attention and do our best to understand Ezekiel. And we begin with this inaugural vision in chapter 1. Let's see what happened to him, what he saw, and how he responded. What happened to him, what he saw, and how he responded. First, what happened to him? (laughs) What was this life-changing experience that Ezekiel had? Looking back here at the very first verse, he tells us in the 30th year, that's the 30th year of his life, he's 30 years old, in the fourth month, the fifth day of the month, As he was among the exiles by the Kibar Canal, that was a resettlement site in Babylonia for some of the Jewish exiles, he says, here's what happened. The heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. Now, thanks to Ezekiel's precision, we can be pretty sure of the exact date. This took place on July 31st, 593 B.C. So you can put in your calendar every July 31st. Read Ezekiel 1. But what was this experience that he had on that particular day? Ezekiel says the heavens were opened. Now the only other place in the Old Testament where we find this expression is in the narrative of Noah's flood where it basically means it began to rain. But of course, in that passage, that was not just any kind of rain. It was rain that signaled the beginning of God's judgment on the world. In the New Testament, we find the expression a few times. As Jesus, after Jesus was baptized, Matthew tells us the heavens were opened. 
and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Matthew 3.16. Just before he died, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, saw the heavens opened. And you remember what he saw? He saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You get the sense then that when the heavens are opened, something really significant is about to happen. The meaning of the phrase from these passages is quite clear. The opening of the heavens means that one is enabled to see behind the scenes, getting a glimpse of what is happening in the spiritual realm. But, but this is not just some kind of esoteric experience disconnected from the realities of life on earth. Listen to me. Ezekiel is not here having a psychedelic experience. He's not smoking weed. <laughs> when, the king of Assyria, when the king of Syria, by the, you, that wasn't supposed to be just funny. Like people actually have evaluated Ezekiel psychedelically. That's what they think is going on here. And I'm saying, no way. Um, when the king of Syria surrounded Elisha with a massive army, Elisha's servant cried out, this is 2 Kings 6, what are we going to do? We are surrounded by like an army, real people with ancient weapons. And Elisha asked the Lord, open his eyes that he may see. You remember the account? God responded to Elisha's prayer, and the servant saw that the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That wasn't a hallucination. It wasn't a psychedelic experience because what happened next, you can read it in 2 Kings 6, is the army of Syria is subsequently defeated. Ezekiel's experience here was one in which he was enabled to see something real, something meaningful for life as an exile in Babylon. So then Ezekiel tells us that when the heavens were opened, he saw visions of God. That phrase by itself is ambiguous. It could mean Ezekiel saw God. But that's not how Ezekiel uses the expression when he uses it in two other places in his book. He uses this phrase to mean that he saw something that mortals could normally not see. Now, at the end of the chapter, Ezekiel does tell us that his experience was, was an encounter with God. Or at least title of the sermon, a very close encounter with God. The word translated visions is not the typical word used for a prophetic experience. It's translated in our Bible as vision, just like the other word is, but it's a different Hebrew word that's used here. And this word seems to communicate a more direct experience. In fact, the only other person in the Old Testament who makes the claim that Ezekiel makes here is Moses. Ezekiel's experience is comparable only to Moses when he encountered God at the burning bush. So now imagine that scene. 
we should think of Ezekiel's experience here not so much as a vision of God in some sort of dreamlike or, as some have thought, psychedelic state. This is an actual encounter happening in time and space. In other words, if you had been there with him, you would have seen what he saw. Just like if you had been with Moses on the mountain, there was a bush burning. Mysterious. It wasn't being consumed, but a real in space and time encounter with God. That's what Ezekiel claims happened to him. Okay. Believe him or not, that's what he says. Now, let's see what he saw. It's going to be just as mysterious as Moses seeing this bush burning, but the bush not being burned up. Well, Ezekiel has a weird experience too. In verse 4, he begins to describe it to us. Ezekiel's encounter begins with a stormy wind coming out of the north. He observes a great cloud that cannot be ignored because he describes it as glowing there, were, there was brightness around it, fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. Now, notice the words, as it were. <laughs> One of the difficulties with understanding this encounter is that it seems Ezekiel himself had a hard time understanding it. What he describes throughout the first chapters is largely done by comparison. It looked like this. It was sort of like that, but he tells us enough to know that the wind and the cloud here resembles quite a bit a description of Israel's God, Yahweh, in a text like, for example, example Psalm 18. You could write that down in your margin. You read Psalm 18, this is probably what Ezekiel is comparing it to. It's described... An encounter with Yahweh in Psalm 18 is described like an encounter with a thunderstorm. Now, why would an ancient agricultural people describe encountering God like encountering a thunderstorm? <laughs> the answer, of course, is because in a society like that, this was the best metaphor available to describe an encounter with absolute power. You know, the kind of power that could either sustain life or, in another sense, obliterate it. We sang the old hymn this morning, How Great Thou Art. It has thunderstorm images in it, right? You get the point. You've been in a, an encounter with the storm that brings awe to you. And Ezekiel says, this, is, this encounter was like that. So Ezekiel knows right away he's encountering the God of Israel coming to him complete with absolute power, but he sees more. In verses 5 to 14, Ezekiel describes the likeness of four living creatures. Now, this is where it gets weird. <laughs> they come, they're coming out of the midst of the cloud. Again, it's, it's just hard to imagine the scene. He says that these creatures had a human likeness, but they also had uh, three other faces. The face of a human, along with the face of a lion, an ox, and an eagle. 
And then he says they had four wings, but human hands. They were glowing, and they also moved rapidly, darting like a flash of lightning. So, imagination, run wild. There are, in fact, in church history, several portraits of people trying to imagine the scene, trying to draw it out. Ezekiel himself will tell us in chapter 10 that these living creatures are cherubim. But if so, they certainly don't look like the fat-faced angelic infants in so much Western art. So don't let your imagination go too far out of hand here. By the way, cherubim are commonly understood, I think this is true, as angels. But the category angel is far too broad. We usually use the word angel to define all spirit beings except for, of course, the one true God. But in the Bible, angel simply describes a lower-level responsibility of a divine messenger. In the spirit realm, the Bible suggests a more defined hierarchy with some spirit beings as angels, messengers, But others have higher-level responsibilities, like the cherubim. Apparently, according to Ezekiel's vision and where we find them elsewhere in the Old Testament, and you can do a search and check this out, apparently when you see cherubim, their responsibility is they, they, they bear the divine throne. In other words, where you see cherubim, you are about to encounter the resting place of God's invisible presence. Cherubim were engraved around the, on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, and God manifested his presence between the cherubim. So that's what Ezekiel is describing here. Now, this fits here with the appearance of the cherubim in Ezekiel 1. Their appearance means Ezekiel is, he he has entered into the inner court of the temple. He's walked into the holy of holies. Now, remember that Ezekiel tells us he was a priest. He, He had spent his whole life preparing for the great privilege to get to go into the Holy of Holies. But there's a problem. Because Ezekiel, where is he? He's not in Jerusalem. He's in Babylon. He's in Babylonia. He's he's near the Chebar Canal. He's a long ways away from Jerusalem. But he's spent his whole life preparing for an encounter like this. But his exile to Babylon had destroyed all those hopes. How are you going to go into the Holy of Holies when you're living in exile In Babylon. But do you see what's happening? Ezekiel, far removed from Jerusalem, is not hallucinating. He's there. He says he has come into the Holy of Holies, and it's not in Jerusalem. We've seen that this was not some mere vision, but more like a face-to-face encounter. And so we can, with Ezekiel then, begin to draw out some of the implications from this encounter. The presence of God was not confined to the temple in Jerusalem. 
that was shocking to Ezekiel. The wings of the cherubim suggest that as bearers of God's throne, look at it, God's throne was in motion. Ezekiel notices in verses 9 and 12 that these, these throne bearers, the cherubim, they moved to and fro like a flash of lightning, though always without turning. What about those four faces, the lion, the ox, the eagle, the man, the human? These were not arbitrary. In Israel's own history, these creatures, as well as in other ancient Near Eastern cultures, represented the epitome of the creation order. The epitome of strength, the lion, right? The epitome of vitality, the ox. The epitome of mobility, oh, the majestic eagle. Uh, the epitome of creaturely wisdom, the human being. The point that is being communicated, it seems to me, you can disagree if you want, but I'm the preacher. So the point, it seems to me, is that the one who sits above the four living creatures possesses in himself the combination of all power. He possesses all of it, and he possesses it in abundance. And yet, as creatures, these four cherubim tell us something else. They tell us that the spirit realm is not altogether different, not altogether distinct from the natural realm. You see, in our terminology, heaven and earth tend to be disconnected. We think of them as two separate entities. But in the Bible, the terms heaven and earth are inseparable. They are connected, and Yahweh rules them both. In other words, when he takes the throne of one, he necessarily takes the throne of the other. You know, like when King Charles III became the king. He didn't just become king of England. He became the head of all the other British commonwealth nations. That's how we're supposed to think. That's how Ezekiel is being told to think. The relationship between heaven and earth is inseparable. They are connected so that when God takes the throne of one, he's taken the throne of the other. What about the number four? The number four suggests that these four creatures representing all creaturely power also represent every single point on the compass. And most commentators will tell you that, so I think that's pretty safe uh, belief. In other words, God reigns over all creation with omnipotence and omnipresence. God's power and might are seen not merely in supernatural or what we might call miraculous events, but get this and get this well. God's power is seen more pervasively in the ordinary occurrences that happen every day and every moment. Now let's look at the next thing he saw. The next specific feature of Ezekiel's encounter with God are these four wheels, one for each of the creatures. Take a look. Notice, the wheels were on the earth and beside the living creatures. 
again, showing us an inseparable connection between earth and what we would call heaven. These are giant wheels, right? They're on the earth, but they're beside the four creatures bearing the throne of God. That we are still gazing with Ezekiel at a divine reality is indicated again by gleaming, the gleaming of beryl. Verse 18 says that the rims of the wheels were full of eyes all around, but that's probably not as bizarre as it sounds. The word eye here probably refers to the shape of the objects in the rims. Eye-shaped jewels which add to the brilliance of the entire image. Now, Ezekiel goes on to tell us that these wheels were more like a wheel within a wheel, some sort of a three-dimensional sphere, perhaps like a caster. The, the shape just means, again, that this object, like the four creatures, can freely move in any direction, like a bolt of lightning, dashing to and fro. And move they do. Look at verses 19 and 21. The wheels moved in harmony with the four creatures, both on earth as well as in heaven. And they move freely between the two. They moved in harmony because the same spirit was in the wheels as in the four creatures. Okay, but what are the wheels? What what are these wheels? We, We get that divine power is represented here. Wheels in motion, going somewhere, led by the indwelling spirit of God. And we get the connection hinted at by the association of the wheels working in harmony with the living creatures. In other words, if you're looking for divine power, it's not to be found somewhere else outside of the events happening in every corner of the globe. Ezekiel is encouraged to see, once more, the events on earth are connected to the motion of heaven, represented by these tall and awesome rims that touch the earth but also go up to the heavens. But what are the wheels? Most interpreters agree that what we're seeing here, four wheels, is representing that the divine throne is something like a wheeled chariot. God's throne not only flies through the sky on the wings of the cherubim, but also roams the earth on the wheels of a chariot. And the meaning of God's omnipresent movement The meaning of a chariot, by the way, is that somebody's coming with justice. That's what I believe the wheels signify. So when Ezekiel gets a glimpse of the universe from God's perspective, the created order in God's presence, he sees God is alive and well. Remember, he's in exile in Babylon. We saw last week the theological trauma that the Babylonian exile would have been for Jews who believed that God could not violate a covenant. He was going to protect his people, protect his city, protect his temple, protect the king. And all that had been taken away. And so the people are in theological trauma. And Ezekiel now has this experience, this encounter with God, where God is telling him, I'm on the move. The lion of Judah is restless. 
So for Ezekiel and the exiles in Babylon, that would be an important revelation because the circumstances that they've endured have brought into question the justice of God, the the righteousness of God. God seems to have violated his covenant. And just like some of you have begun to question in your own trying circumstances. Now, the next element that Ezekiel points out to us is the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above the heads of the spread out above the heads of the four living creatures. Now, this expanse is the word that you find repeatedly in Genesis chapter one. It's that thing that God created to separate the water above it from the water below it. In Genesis 1, God called this expanse heaven. And he put lights there to light the earth. He filled it with birds to fly there. It is here, the psalmist says in Psalm 19.1, in the sky above, it's the same word, in the expanse above, that God's handiwork is proclaimed to humans below. In other words, this expanse, this King James called it a firmament, this dome signifies the creative power of God, the power to bring order out of chaos by a process of separation. Wherever we see chaos, we are going to be tempted to believe God has lost control. That's what happens in your life. Things don't go as you thought they should. Where's God? I I know that's true because I get to be one of your pastors. I've heard you say it. I've said it. Where there's chaos, the temptation is God's lost control. But Ezekiel in this vision is shown you're supposed to think the opposite. Chaos is precisely where you would expect to find a God of absolute power and resolute justice. A God who's about to go to work. Chaos, by the way, is what Ezekiel hears, the sound of the wings of the living creatures. It's almost like all of creation is in chaotic disorder, verse 24. But right then, he hears a voice coming from above the expanse of separation and a voice that silences the chaos. The wings stop their fluttering. He hears a voice. Yeah, this is Genesis 1 all over again. Ezekiel is seeing God here while we're in exile, while we seem to have all of our theological uh, doctrines ruined, God is about to go to work. God is about to begin, what should we call it? A new creation. God is about to do something that amazes and perplexes all at the same time. And that's when Ezekiel sees it. He tells us, above the expanse, this is verse 26, the likeness 
of a throne. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. Now, a lot of the commentaries will tell you that Ezekiel is describing here an Assyrian throne room. Archaeologists have actually uncovered one of the great Assyrian throne rooms. And what Ezekiel describes here uh, would exactly reflect the, enca- the experience of walking into an Assyrian throne room. When you walk into the room in which the throne that the king sits on, when you walk in the room, in an Assyrian throne room, you would not actually see the king. So you would walk in and you'd be facing a long wall, but the king would be seated back here, kind of behind you, to your left or to your right. Ezekiel doesn't actually say that he saw the one on the throne. Notice, he saw the likeness of a throne and the likeness of a human appearance. Facing the wall when you walked in would be a representation of the king, not the actual king. This is what Ezekiel describes happened to him. It was an encounter with God, or was it almost an encounter, a close encounter? Well, notice lastly how he responded. Again, he doesn't actually claim to see this one on the throne, but only his representation. And yet, just seeing the representation was enough to drop him on his face. Who or what is this representation of the God of Israel that would garner the same response that normally one would only have for God himself? This is no mystery, Christians. Ezekiel has encountered the likeness of a man. Enough, though, to drop him to his face as if he was seeing the God of Israel himself. This is, of course, an encounter with the pre-incarnate Christ. That's why John describes it just like that in Revelation 4. The one who has taken his throne possesses absolute power. No question about it. He commands even the wind and the waves, and they obey him. And he uses this absolute power to bring justice. But it's a restorative, creative justice on earth. His presence is experienced on earth, on every point on earth. And Ezekiel would, I think, tell us, That if you encounter God like this, the only way to survive the encounter is to get on your face. Absolute submission before the absolute power of God. In fact, it reminds me, as it reminds other commentators, of 
the 29th Psalm, and I'd like to close by having you turn there with me. I'm going to read it. Psalm 29. It's a Psalm of David, and here's what it says. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. You hear Genesis 1? The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. You see Ezekiel 1? The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. Just ask Pastor Jod if that's significant. He'll tell you. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood, over chaos. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. So, Christian, whatever chaos is in your life right now, and you are tempted to think, where is the God of justice? Rest assured, he is about to go to work. Now, total surrender to Jesus doesn't simply mean falling on your face in worship. It doesn't mean less than that. Ezekiel would say. You encounter this kind of of power, you're going down. One day, the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Many unbelievers had said, if God would just show up like this, I'd believe him. God has shown up like this, and we killed him. But total surrender to Jesus doesn't just mean falling down your face in worship. It means total obedience to what he commands. Listen. The psalm, I didn't, did you notice I didn't read the last verse, Psalm 29? (laughs) Because after this display of awesome power, here is the response. Here is the benediction. Here is the prayer. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. You know why the psalmist prays that? You know why in the face of awesome power and falling down before him, the psalmist says, now now strengthen your people. Bless them with peace. You know why he does that? Because what comes next after the inaugural vision is the divine call, is the divine command. Submission to God is not just worship, it's also worshipful obedience. You see, God is about to go to work, but God is going to go to work through his restored people. Through his people strengthened with his power. 
God wants to do something about the chaos in his world. So he sent his son, a close encounter, an encounter with God himself, so that having taken his throne, having ascended to the right hand of the Father, he will pour out his spirit upon all flesh, and he will send you and me out with a commission, with a calling. That's what comes next. What does God want to do? What does he want you to do, Christian? Are you ready to obey? Well, we'll go to that next week. But until then, we sang this morning, ponder anew what the Almighty could do if with his love he befriended thee. A tough love to be sure, but what if God cares so much about his world that he has redeemed and restored you with awesome power so that now he can say, stand to your feet. I got work for you to do. Let's find out next week. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I'm guessing that Ezekiel would say to us, who might feel a little bit jealous, wish I could have seen that vision, wish I could have had that encounter, I think Ezekiel might say, you have something better. Something that I only dreamed of. God came to earth in the likeness of sinful flesh, and in the flesh, of the Messiah, condemned sin once and for all. The exile's over. Sins have been forgiven. Restoration has been achieved. And now, here's the good news. Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. Go make disciples. Prepare us, O Lord, for the commission and for the call by letting us remember again our encounter with the Lord. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. As we come to